They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast of the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I'm Aaron and I'm your host, I recorded today's interview last Friday, the 26th of June, and I'm recording this intro on July 1st. As of now, the Orlando convention is still on, but the usual suspects are threatening that again. And uh, so I don't have any more update for you today other than to stay up to date. And I can't stress this enough. You need to subscribe to the Mises Caucus newsletter, the email newsletter at takehumanaction.com because that's where we'll put out the most important updates, especially for those of you who, um, if there's news uh, that will affect your travel plans uh, to Orlando, we're going to get that out to you with an explanation as soon as possible, we hope, when, uh, when we find out. Also, a reminder to sign up for door prizes, which includes an AR-15 rifle during the upcoming rescheduled Mises Caucus money bomb that we were going to have back in March, which ended up being right around when all the the shutdowns started. Uh, We're going to reschedule that sometime in the next few weeks, definitely this summer. Uh, So even if you're already a financial supporter of the Mises Caucus, you need to register for the door prize to be eligible uh, because for legal reasons, we have to make door prizes eligible to everyone um, and not just contributors. So uh, don't think that you're registered for the door prize just because you already give money to us. Uh, I wish we could do it differently, but you need to visit lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb to get registered. That's lpmesiscaucus.com slash moneybomb. Now, today's guest is the co-host of the Scottish Liberty Podcast and an author who's been published at Mises.org, among other places, He's also uh, a counselor and the author of a book called Procrastination Annihilation. And of course, he's the author of Universal Basic Income For and Against, which has carved out a nice spot for him as a libertarian expert on that issue. Uh, In fact, he was slated to do a Soho Forum debate with Andrew Yang, the the chief uh, proponent of UBI here in the United States. Uh, That was supposed to be last year before Yang dropped out which I think was really unfortunate for people who want to, to understand the issue more. I, I, I wonder if it's because Yang did some research on what uh, Anthony Samaroff had to say about things, and, and that's why he dropped out. I don't know, but uh, he would have had a run for his money. Uh, we get into, of course, the UBI issue and many other topics in this interview. I hope you enjoy with Anthony Samaroff. Anthony Samaroff, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. A great pleasure to be here. The revolution may not be televised, but it certainly will be decentralized. That, that's kind of what the vibe we were going for. Uh, I think that's the the best hope that we have uh, at this point in history. Uh, before we get started, I want to show everybody I've got my Scotland rugby jersey on. Right. My, yes. uh, my wife and I, part of our honeymoon was in uh, Edinburgh, so... Um, this was my, uh, there was a, a guy, he was a Sikh who had a shop uh, across from the, I think the main train station in uh, Edinburgh, and he tried to sell me a kilt. And I didn't, I, I was like, ah, I'm never going to wear that. So I, I bought the rugby jersey instead, and uh, everybody likes it over here. So, yeah, um, a lot of Americans have a passion for Scotland. Yeah, one I have one Scottish. Uh, my grandfather's grandfather came over here from Kirkintilloch in the 1880s, 
Um, so I've got a connection there. I've got the red beard, so I could almost pass. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, so let's talk about you though. Um, I, being in Scotland, uh, there's not a lot of, uh, at least modern libertarians associated with, uh, with Scotland. What's your libertarian origin story? How do, why did you get involved in politics? What were you always a libertarian? How'd you end up where you are now? No, the, first time I ever met a libertarian, I was about 1920, and I was uh, a summer camp counsellor in uh, Pennsylvania, and a summer camp in Pennsylvania I came over, and uh, I had a political discussion with one of the kids at the camp, and he said some of his views, and I, was, I just like, my kind of jaw dropped, like I'd never seen anything like it before, and I went, you're a libertarian, and he went, yup uh yup like uh owned that and i was like i'd never met one before i'd vaguely seen them referenced in something or other that i'd read but i'd never it, it was like for me there seemed to be a contradiction at the time between economic freedom and personal freedom i didn't see how no regulations for corporations was it was compatible with that but we had some debates and uh, he respected me because I was at least uh, well informed compared to the other leftists that he spoke to but I didn't think that much of it although he did recommend me some Ayn Rand I picked up the books and never read them <laughs> some years later I started YouTubing because I guess I'd picked up some political points that I want that I thought that I had to repeat over and over again and I thought well I could just make short videos and then when that comes up in a political debate, then I can say, hey, what do you think of this view? And what happened was a bunch of libertarians started gate crashing my channel. This is around 2007. And they uh, kept on telling me how wrong I was and sending me to other videos. And there was a pretty big, well, I mean, big as far as YouTube was at the time, libertarian presence on YouTube, but not much of a left-wing presence, which is funny because you think that they filter into everything. And then Ron Paul came on the scene and I started to adopt some libertarian views, starting with the idea that, um, well, the central banks were clearly a, a big problem and that uh, uh, I couldn't understand why this wasn't actually a bigger point amongst uh, my fellow left leaning, well, left wing. I don't know where you'd put, I was probably something like, I was a progressive, but we don't use that word in the UK. We certainly didn't use it back then. I believed in a market economy, but with lots of regulation and, uh, you know, help for needy people. So it wasn't an out and out commie. Uh, I believed in a modified market economy. So, um, Little by little, over a couple of years, by osmosis, I started watching more and more libertarian videos and I I gradually converted. I didn't have a big boom. I, I, I just went straight from being a progressive to being an anarchist. Wow. So you did you did have a, a very quick evolution. Yeah, I didn't think it was that quick. It did okay. take me a it did take me a couple of years. Oh, like okay. All right. I was pretty entrenched in my views. I, I kind of migrated, uh, but you know that expression. Uh, it, it used to be popular back then. Uh, I was a minarchist until I ran out of excuses. Like I ran out of excuses for left wing views. I guess uh, one by one, my objections were systematically punched to death by the superior reasoning of the libertarian position. And, it, you know, while there was still some gray areas, like, what about public parks? And what about this? And what about that? It's like the, the, when you looked at, when I looked at things like, oh, you know, healthcare is in a state. Oh yeah, well, that's because of government. Education is in a state. Well, oh yeah, that's because of government. Everything traced back. And I thought, well, put it this way. If almost everything that I have investigated um, seems to have its roots in government like and the NAP seems to solve most issues it could be the case that in the few outlying cases that I think it's troublesome it probably 
isn't because there seems to be a common denominator here. But I had to be sufficiently convinced of the consequentialist case for libertarianism before I accepted the deontological case, like the non-aggression principle and things like that. When I saw the consequentialist case sufficiently, I was like, okay, well, do you know what? Um, it's just a principle. It's just a principle when you remove coercion from interactions, uh, things get better. It, it must be because there's too much evidence in favor of the principle. Right. <laughs> so. I went. I went round the back way. The, went round the long way. What uh, What drew you to? I assume uh, from some of your posts on social media and uh, from the uh, your book, Universal Basic Income for and Against, that uh, the obviously the economic side of things, and specifically, I think the Austrian side. What about you? What about that attracted you? And and why have you? Uh, focused on that a lot in in your work and and thought rather than other aspects of being yeah, I guess libertarian. I guess it's what you know Mises calls catalactics. Um, it's the the functioning of the market. It's beauty and it's elegance and it's explanatory power. Like we can predict what will happen as the consequence of policies from Austrian theory. And you know, even though Mises was very big on the a prioristic element, he's always able to go, well, if you look at this historical event, it illustrates the theory Paris, uh, when Britain was at war with France, this happened. And uh, this is proof, you know, as he didn't say it's proof, but he just used them as examples. And then you go everywhere you look, you kind of see Austrian econ economics in action. I think the fact that it makes sense as a system and, you know, my prejudice would be like a lot of people's prejudice, which is you need evidence, you know, reason and evidence. One of the when, when I when I was a leftist and I made a video on redistribution of wealth and I said, well, you know, right wingers say that the minimum wage uh, will destroy jobs. But um, if you look at the last couple of times, the minimum wage was increased at job growth increased and people would come on and say, no, 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 you've got the wrong idea here. It's, um, it's, it's not, uh, that's not the proper method. I would go, what are you crazy? You can't reject evidence. But as I began to really study and understand Austrian economics, I could see how elegant and the, the I, I love things that are true. I'm just yep. like, uh, I, 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 uh, a friend asked me, uh, a week or two ago, what do you like so much about economics? He doesn't know very much about it. And I, and my response, my gut response was, it's true. You know, I, I, I enjoyed philosophy at university. And even I was lucky to go to a school that did, uh, did a philosophy course in my last year. I got, and uh, I was fascinated by, by it with philosophy and ideas. And I, I even... I entertained ideas that I disagreed with. I saw the beauty of Kant, even though I disagreed with him. I saw the I saw the beauty in in the ideas of all the great philosophers, um, even when I disagreed with them. It was nice to see that people systematized the world. I loved if if I knew there was such a field of history, if I knew there was such a field of study as the history of ideas, when I was a younger man, I would have gone to university to study that. I think. Because that is really interesting to me, how ideas have evolved over time and how people build on the ideas of people who came before them. But essentially, um, like I, I am very interested in philosophy, the, uh, the history of philosophy and the history of ideas. But and I love economics for the same reason, because of its explanatory power. Yeah, I, I, that's that's I think a. As, as good an explanation as any, as the, you know, the beauty of Austrian economics and what makes it different. Why do you think, at least my perception is, is that the mainstream Keynesians um, and the, the people who want to do all the econometrics and stuff like that, why do you think they're so blind to the limitations of that approach? Or am I being unfair? I don't know. It's it's a very hard question to answer. There could be lots of things at play. You can You can go down the um root of saying well what's the use of if you're in economics an economist what's the 
use of a theory that says you basically have to do nothing. Where are the jobs for um, the e economists under a system where Austrian economics is accepted as true? But, you know, that's kind of like, a, that's almost like a Marxist argument. You know, Marx liked to say, well, if you have a certain set of ideas, it's just because you're bourgeois, you know, you can't, uh, well, well, it, well, it may be true that people are motivated by their self-interest and their ideas. It's not sufficient to say that they're motivated by their by their personal interest. You have to say why the ideas are wrong. And a lot of people just find the truth compelling and they, they can't deny it. it. You could also go down the line of saying it's harder to understand. Um, a lot of left-wing positions are pretty... Uh, intuitive like well we've got rich people over there and we've got poor people over there just take some money from the rich people and give yeah. it to the poor people it's harder to explain that that might actually be damaging to the poor people in the long term because yeah. you have less capital investment so the products are more expensive and the real wages are worth less then you can go yeah, but i do find it pretty hard to understand why most economists don't understand the theory of the trade cycle and how printing money is going to create a misallocation of resources. You know, it's going to create the wrong kind of investment uh, that turns. I, I really find it hard to understand why such a simple. I mean, I'm not saying that when Mises wrote about it, he was simple, but there's tons of people who have explained it much simpler than he did um, in layman's terms. And it's pretty easy to understand. Uh, I don't really know why that's adopted. There's an esoteric view, uh, which would go something like, well, they're all trained in the university system through uh, through forced funding at gunpoint through taxation. And the universal law will not work for a system that is unethical. So it's like, it's kind of like a spooky idea that, you know, um, if you want the truth, you need to see, seek it through just means and the university system isn't exactly going to be able to accomplish that so if, if economics is indeed a sacred science one of the, the the things that explains the universe as it is so i i don't really have a conclusive answer to that um the, the the only other thing i think is we really have been indoctrinated in the idea that the scientific method is the only method for all sciences and that there is no a priori a prioristic truth and even if you say you're certain of anything people often come back well you know you can't be sure about anything you know what if you're a brain in a vat uh, you know what if you're manipulated by descartes evil demon I think that argument is easily disposed of by saying, well, when we talk about mechanics, let's say, or architecture, you can't say to the architect who draws up a bridge, well, how do you know that the material world is even true? You know, you're trying to plan to build a, a bridge based on the laws of physics, but you don't even know if there is an external world. It's like, no, no, no. When we talk about economics, we come from the presumption that the material world is uh, is true uh, in order to to come up with theories that i mean myself i strongly lean towards the idea of spiritual monism which is the idea that there is actually no material world and there is um, there's only objects in consciousness so if you ask that question does a if a tree falls down in the forest, does it make and there's no one to hear it? Does it make a sound? Like my uh, the metaphysical theory that I lean towards say no. There's not there's not even a tree to fall down. There's not even a tree to fall down unless there's unless there's consciousness for it to 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 perceive it. However, even accepting a monistic. Uh, monistic idealism, spiritual idealism, which, by the way, I'm not sure if it's true, but I lean towards thinking it's true. In order to operate in the in the world which we live in, um, you have to kind of assume that it's predictable and and it, and it works on basic mechanics. Um, and it, so, so yeah, so I, I, the the kind of you can't be sure of anything really doesn't really doesn't apply. Sorry if I, I stray a little bit far from the question, but no, that's, 
as I said, like I love ideas, and these this is like center of the bullseye for me in terms of oh, that's kind of interesting to think about. Right. Um, I, I I'm interested in your ideas um, on. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a bit of an Anglophile as well as, you know, liking Scottish things and all that. And I've, I've struggled to fully understand uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of Brexit, why it happened, what is going to be the fallout. Like, you know, obviously the name of this podcast, Decentralized Revolution, we, we don't want these big mega states. We want, uh, like I think Hoppe said, a thousand or 10,000 Liechtensteins would, would be better. Is is Brexit a, a a step in that right direction, or is it something else? And and what does that mean for possible Scottish independence and and all that? Right, that's a lot. Okay, yeah. so so Brexit is it a step in the right direction? Yes. Is it as much of a step as people think it is? Probably not, because we're members of several pan-European institutions as well as the European Union that stipulate to us common policies. Uh, was it motivated by the desire for decentralization? I'd say largely yes. I think the main thing driving Brexit voters was we should have the power closer to home. We don't want Europeans making a one size fits all policy for us. A lot of people said uh, it was uh, skepticism of foreigners or even racism. I think immigration is certainly a factor. That's a little bit silly in a way because um, we're we're not because immigration isn't a por- an important issue, but just because the the it's not likely to change our immigration policy as radically as those who think it is. As I I don't think. Um, and certainly not going to stop the people from the nations that people don't want here from coming here. Like, uh, but maybe I, I, it's it's a little bit of a red herring. I think you know it would be great to have freedom of movement uh, between all the English-speaking countries and Britain. And of course, though, that's racist. You can't say that. But I think that that, that would be a priority just because it gives uh, because it's easy for people who have a common language to take advantage of. Um, job opportunities and things like that and then um, but there, there is certain ways I guess the immigration thing comes into uh, or more trade deals and things like that we, we've been told that it's hard for us to get the trade deals we want even out of outside of Brexit because of the other bodies that govern us but um, I don't know we'll, we'll have to see like India's English speaking for commerce purposes but Britain didn't have a trade deal with India because the European Union was there to stop it obviously as libertarians we think why the hell do you need a trade deal it's just like if anyone wants to buy anything and anyone wants to sell anything you should be able to do that so um and you had another there there's other motivations for Brexit but I think the idea of sovereignty and local government was the main reason why why people voted for it. They didn't like the idea of these um, faraway people making one-size-fits-all decisions for them. How it plays into Scottish independence? Well, the European Union is far more popular in Scotland mm. than in England. And I get the feeling that a lot of people just don't. And that's that's one of the reasons why they're far um, Scottish independence, but they'd be quite happy to take us out of the union with England and Wales and Northern Ireland and put us straight back into the European Union. So that's not necessarily a favourable thing about Scottish independence. For me personally, we've got a Scottish Parliament here. It was built at great expense. I don't see the reason for us to have to vote both in the Scottish elections and in the elections down in Westminster, I think it would be great if we had a diet where all policies pertaining to Scotland were voted for in the Scottish Parliament and we can withdraw our influence in the the Parliament in England. But, you know, maybe for some things like uh, military and a couple of other things, um, still behave as one nation so that we don't need to start getting our own uh, armies and our own embassies all, all over the world. 
world and this and that. Let's just write the, our own laws for our own geographical area. The, the, the problem with that is, of course, I don't want to live in the People's Republic of Scotland. And it seems to me that people are somewhat more left leaning in Scotland than in England. But then again, they can't just institute a much higher corporation tax in Scotland than England, for example, because all the businesses will just go down to England. So that makes me a little bit more optimistic. Personally, at first I lent against Scottish independence, but now that I see, I think that it's basically a, just because of that, just because, mostly because of the, the uh, Soviet state of Scotland objection, but also a little bit because, you know, I, I like British things, you know, I like faulty towers, I like Queen, I feel British as well as Scottish. I, I feel more Scottish than British, but I also feel a little bit British. I like tea. Um, right. So, but, but that's not really a rational reason, that's just a matter of sentiment, and we can't settle. Uh, now, now that uh, matters of sentiment through reason, now that it, I see that it's pretty much inevitable demographically. I think that it may be an opportunity, as uh, my co-host of the Scottish Liberty Ta podcast, Tam, often says, it's easier to convince five or six million people of our position than 10 times that number. Yeah. Uh, why Why is Scotland more left-wing than than most of Britain? I'm not sure. But I suspect it's something to do with this um, idea of the legacy of colonialism. Like uh, a lot of African countries went Marxist after the British left. Why? Or the Europeans left, I should say. Why? Because capitalism is the system of the Europeans. So therefore, socialism must be this the system of us. You know, sometimes when the Soviet Union withdrew its empire from satellite states, they went more capitalist, like Estonia, because right. they're like, yeah, whatever that is, we don't want that. You know, Poland went a little bit more capitalist. I fear it's going back the way it came from. Uh, it might be something like to do with that, like, oh, there's a idea in Scotland that we've been oppressed. And, you know, Marx really liked to compare, um, really like to compare serfs uh, under feudalism and castes, you know, higher and lower castes in society and slaves and masters in every society. And so so there's a there's a propensity to say, well, you know, the English were the ruling class and the Scottish were the slave class. And therefore, that's a feature of capitalism, you know. So it's, that might be part of it. I think wherever people feel victimized whether their views are legitimate or illegitimate and um, there's a tendency towards adopting the socialist narrative i think that's my best guess okay if uh if scotland ever were to vote for independence is is great britain going to honor that or are they going to try to prevent I, I would imagine they would campaign against it uh, like they did last time but uh, if it came, if it came to be, would they pursue it any further, or would they just? Let I it happen? think that I think that they'd have to allow the breaking to to take place. I mean, even though I have a bias towards smaller states, I really think that these elections should have been a two-thirds majority in order to leave and that that would put me in the losing side in brexit unfortunately but just because of because in or it's easier to come out than to go back in and you know you don't want this kind of society where four years were every four years we're out then in then out then in then out then in that might make me unpopular around some people but even though i'm leaning towards scottish independence now i i think it would be good to wait until there's a two-thirds majority. Because it's a historical inevitability, I think, demographically speaking, I think more and more people are for Scottish independence. It would be good to wait until you had a 60 or two-thirds majority, because then you've got a proper mandate. This this idea of 55% of people being against and 45% being for, or even closer with Brexit, it was 52-48. That Look at the division it's caused. It's yep. too, it's, it's fundamentally, I want to live in a cohesive society, you know, and that's not really popular amongst revolutionaries to say, but, you know, even 
I've said, you know, it's hard to argue with, you know, when you say, you know, I don't, um, it was like the, you know, with the immigration argument or anything like that. It's like when you've got a welfare state and, you know, I don't want gated communities where people who all came over from uh, one African nation uh, all live in the same street and in the same building blocks and they only talk their own language and they feel alienated for the rest of the community because they've not uh, properly integrated. They feel like, British people aren't accepting them and British people when they walk down that street feel like they might get beat up like I want I want to live in a society that's cohesive and so for the same reason I think it's better to have um, a majority of 60 or 66 percent when it comes to these kinds of referendums right um, let's talk about this uh, universal basic income for and against um, I hear Anthony's, that's a fantastic book. Uh, yeah, in fact, I read a I've review of it. Uh, <laughs> oh, you got it signed. I, yeah. I've got. I I read a review of that book a couple of days ago. Someone sent me. They'd reviewed the book, and it was, it was a really really great review. It was a guy yeah. called uh, Aaron Harris. Where can yeah. people find that review? It's. Uh, I have a blog called ThingsNotSeen.info, which the .info is not optimal. I, I'm. I haven't been able to get the .com yet, but um, I, I I wanted to have you on, and uh, you I think you sold uh, you had you were over here for a Soho Forum thing, and you had some extra books, and so my uh, neighbor and I uh, each bought a copy, and um, uh, and what there's a there's a another reason why I am um, uh, interested in UBI. My uh, my brother-in-law and his wife. Um, are Andrew Yang supporters and big supporters of the UBI. Um, and, uh, my, uh, my wife, yeah, my wife's family is Taiwanese. So there's a natural affinity for seeing, you know, one of their own, uh, in Andrew Yang. And, uh, my sister-in-law actually used to be a little more of a Ron Paul type, uh, but they're kind of under the spell and I'm not criticizing them or, you know, it's not been a, a source of friction, but I've wanted to understand, UBI better. So, cause they're always asking me about economics and stuff like that. And, um, I, I feel better informed after, after reading. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about it. Um, and what you do is you, it is for and against you lay out the, the case, uh, for and against, and then you kind of take it in a different direction, which I liked. Um, but first of all, explain what it is. I think a lot of people have a general idea what it is, you know, where did it come from? Uh, why, what is it and why do people favor it? Well, the universal basic income is just the idea that everyone should be entitled to a certain sum of money, not a great sum of money, but enough to make sure that no one goes hungry and that everyone's basic needs are met. It's been knocking around for a while, but it just really came into popularity in the last few years. And, um, I guess, sorry, there was quite a few questions there. Uh, I, I, that's a bad habit of mine. I always ask five questions at once, but so explain how, explain how it would work. What, what are the proponents? How would they set it up? There's, there's a bunch of different proposals. Uh, the best or the simplest proposal I should say is just that people get us an amount of money paid into their bank account every month by the government. And this would require an official bank account that would require um, you know, maybe an ID card or something like that to make sure that there's minimal amount of fraud. Uh, there's more complicated ones like, well, you you if you're working, you 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 get your UBI as a tax deduction, and if you're not working, you get it as a negative income tax, like a minus income tax. You 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 get topped up on top of your wages, and if you're somewhere in the middle, then you get some combination of both. But the simplest ones like just pay into your bank account. And I guess people support it because they like the idea of um, no one going hungry. They support it because there's a couple of arguments like it would um, make it much more simple, make the whole system much more simple. Instead of having lots of different benefits, you just have one that was paying payable to everyone. It would be harder to scam, maybe. Um, they'd save a lot of money on bureaucracy. Um, they'd be able to sack all the public sector workers who are just getting money for being bureaucrats and save the money for people who really needed it. That's a little bit uh, ten. I'm not really uh, that. That's a little bit optimistic. I think I'm not really sure if uh, how the 
how the public sector bureaucrats will feel. They'll probably, uh, their unions will probably go on strike. They'll probably just get allocated to other jobs. But there's certainly a, there's certainly a few good reasons. One, one of the other good reasons is probably the strongest argument for it is that under the current system, a lot of people are deterred from working because if they hit a certain income, they lose all their benefits or a large portion of them. So there's welfare cliffs, or as we call them in the UK, poverty trap, where even supposing you, supposing you want to earn an extra hundred bucks, your effective tax rate might be over a hundred percent when you count when you factor in the amount of benefits lost. Even if it's not over a hundred percent, if your effective tax rate when you discount the benefits and add the amount that you're being taxed is even seventy four percent, um, that's only twenty six cents for every dollar that you're getting from for your work. A lot of people would just rather stay at home. So it's meant to. It's meant to solve that problem by ensuring that everyone who takes on more work will always be earning more money and not less. Right. Um, so one of the arguments you make in the book um, is that there's no question. I, I think I think I have this correct that taxes will just have to go up in order to do this. Even though um, under the under most of these plans, you know, rich people would also get the same UBI, but it would just be taxed back from them. Is that correct? So, um, but overall taxes are, is there, is yeah. there any, what, what do proponents of that when they are, they're just fine with that? They don't see any problems coming from a massive tax increase. It seems to me that they think that the benefits outweigh the cost. I mean, most people don't actually think that taxing the rich is harmful to poor people. So they're like, well, if the, you know, if uh, a couple of rich people have to have a couple less yachts, then then that's fine as long as people at the bottom are are um, not going hungry. They think it's immoral that some people are using. That are heating their swimming pool right. 24 hours a day while other people are starving to death. So it's easy for them to say, oh, boo-hoo, poor rich people will have to pay more money. But as I mentioned in the figures in the book, the idea of just taxing the rich to fund this is an impossibility. The rich, the 1% simply don't have enough money. So it will be regular middle-class people who, are, who have to pay if you want to introduce this system now. Right. Um, one of the arguments for UBI that, that people make that I think is one of the, that seems on the face of it to people, one of the strongest is what you mentioned before, that the, you could get rid of a lot of the bureaucracy. Um, I'm skeptical of that. Like you said, if, if it, it, it kind of denies how politics work, that there's this huge constituency of voting people who work for the government and the unions and all that, they're not going to let that go. And so what they're not going to let it go easily. So I, I think what the fear is, is that we end up with a UBI plus 60% of what we already have. Um, and, and even if you did, you know, take it all the way, it would inevitably grow back because people would make the yes. case, this group needs this because they're more disadvantaged. So we need to have a housing program for this group, even though we have UBI. Um, is that, uh, how do critics deal with that one? Do they just kind of ignore it or, or, or proponents of UBI? How do they handle that argument? Well, I just don't think that they're, they see, they think on it that deeply personally as my prejudice you know it, as you say even if we manage to replace the current system with ubi the next thing it's like oh i'm a single mother i should have a higher ubi oh uh, i i live in an area with high rentals i should have a ubi oh um i have to travel far to work i should have a higher ubi and and it seems superficially plausible so people will say yeah, you know, why shouldn't those groups? But that 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 ruins the whole purpose of not having to have these bureaucratic calculations. And it does make it more susceptible to fraud. So you end up back where you started. Um, I share your skepticism as to whether it's that easy to get rid of public sector workers. I mean, you can't even fire bad teachers. Recently, we heard about the, um, 
the this cop, um, the cop who knelt on the guy's neck. That there was several, there were several complaints about him before. Yeah. He was a bad guy. He was a bad cop, right? And yet he didn't get fired because union regulations made it hard to fire him despite complaints. So all these public sector workers are unionized and they're they're likely to be given new jobs. They're likely to be shifted into other departments. So that doesn't solve the problem of too much bureaucracy. Yeah. Uh, another aspect that uh, Andrew Yang talks about a lot, why we need UBI is automation. And I've never... F- Maybe it's because I'm so libertarian and I see the benefits of automation that I just can't wrap my head around that that uh, fear of automation. But can you explain why people are fearful and and what you think about that? Right. Well, the idea is that um, the machines are going to come and they're going to automate everyone's jobs, leading to some kind of uh, Blade Runner society where... Uh, uh, you know, a dystopian future where a very, very small and diminishing number of people control all the wealth while everyone else is poor. Now, I dedicated a chapter in the book to dealing with this question. And Gene Epstein, I don't know if everyone listening knows him, he runs the Soho Forum in New York, read it and said it was the best thing he'd seen on the topic. So he invited me there to debate. Originally, I was going to debate Andrew Yang, but he pulled out to pursue his presidential campaign. So I ended up uh, debating another guy called Martin Ford. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, I think the thing the thing is, this is an argument that goes down to goes back to Marx, pro, go, predates Marx, uh, where he said he he believed that the a small percentage of capitalists would just get richer and there'd be a smaller and smaller number of capitalists owning more and more of the wealth while everyone would be more and more impoverished. They'd be kept in the minimum amount of subsist they needed to subs- to live. They'd be kept on the minimum wage as possible. There's a couple of ob- objections to that. One is just a historical example shows that uh, the all opposite of what Marx said would happen would happen. Everyone's uh, standard of living went up, not down. And that's because Marx only really saw um, workers and their capacity of workers, not as their capacity of consumers. You know, Mises said, um, the market is uh, mass production for mass consumption. Actually, the consumer is God, not the entrepreneur. The entrepreneur is his slave. If the entrepreneur does not produce what the workers want him to produce, he will go out of business. So because market forces create a downward pressure in price and an upward pressure on quality of goods, the, the standard of living of average people improved. And the more we automate, the assumption is that the extra the extra revenue from automation will go to the capitalists but it doesn't only mm-hmm. uh, both, uh, it tends to go to the consumer in terms of lower and lower prices so the so that's the main misconception about automation and you know if, if you want I think those are the main points I think that if you want a more thorough examination of uh, I recommend picking up copy of the book it's it's not very expensive you can get it off amazon and read that chapter two or three times because it it was written with the intention to give a panoramic view of the issue not a superficial one right um uh i just had a question in my mind this happens once every two or three episodes where i have a great question and it just flies right out of my mind as soon as you finish um uh, your point. Oh, automation. What people, you know, people don't seem to realize that, you know, the, the classic argument that's used a lot in America is the buggy whip industry where a lot of the people who made, you know, things like horse carriages and, and all that stuff uh, were put out of business by the automobile, but then they're freed up to do other things. And yes. I don't think people realize that, you know, would you rather be um, doing a, a drudgery uh, type of a, a uh, factory job, or would you rather be a chef or something like that? It, right. it uh, the people don't see the opportunities uh, right. that come from that. 
And even if we take it to extreme, let's say in four or five hundred years, they have a replicator like on Star Trek and everything just appears, right? Uh, then there's no or little, no or very little labor at all. Who's all this stuff getting spontaneously generated for? The, the, the only reason why anything has a cost is because it's scarce, right? right? So dying environment used to be a once in a lifetime affair for feudal serfs. You know, you might buy a garment once in your entire life, a new garment. But now if you go to, you know, the charity shops, they're trying to give away clothes. They can't actually sell most of them. They'd give away DVDs and books, you know, every now and then all the books that they can't sell go for, they, they just set a table up outside and say, just take what you want because we can't sell these or take in room, right? Mm -hmm. That could happen with laptops and webcams, you know, that could, things could get to the point where society was so rich that everything was abundant and not scarce and would therefore be free or close to free. And so, so that's uh, that's the that's the other objection to the extreme circumstance. Well, what if all of the jobs get automated? It's not likely to happen, but even if it did, it would make everyone rich. It wouldn't impoverish them. Right. Uh, one uh, other uh, aspect that you deal with in the book, uh, a danger of uh, UBI, um, is uh, combining that with something like the Chinese social credit system and uh okay this right. guy this guy's a racist so he doesn't get his ubi or whatever um uh, uh, talk about that some all right cool so that was the in fact see if you got your copy of the book at the soho forum you have a limited edition copy that's uh only 35 or so of those were printed because i updated it one more time afterwards uh but I did it. I quickly updated the version to add that essay at the end that talks about UBI as a dystopian nightmare rather than a utopian dream. And I had, kind of had, had to hastily add it to the new edition of the book ahead of my Soho Forum debate. So it's nice that you got, got that one. Um, yeah, I was really proud of that essay. I originally wrote it for Mises.org, but I wanted to include it in the book as well. So I ran off. Uh, so I updated the manuscript but no more updates okay. <laughs> to the next book i've updated right. it that many times so yeah there's there's this idea that the ubi would be some kind of a utopia where everyone can just do whatever they want but actually I, i'm quite afraid of the potential for the government to use the ubi uh, to abuse the ubi or use it to browbeat people because there's certain things that you could plausibly convince the public of like if someone litters on the street or if someone does doesn't sort out the recycling they they should get punished and people go yeah that seems reasonable and say so, well i'll tell you what the easiest thing to do is since they're getting a thousand dollars a year ubi for every misdemeanor they'll get a hundred dollars chopped off their ubi and people go quite right too those uh, people who are just abusing our society uh shouldn't get the the benefit of the largesse of the UBI that we're so kindly um, furnishing them with. But that's only the beginning because, you know, it's only so matter of time before political dissidents and uh, uh, are excluded their UBI or uh, supposing there was a war. Okay, you don't have to enlist in the army, but if you don't, you'll get, you don't get, you're not entitled to the full UBI because we need the UBI to fund the war effort. You know, that's pretty scary. Um, if you don't have a bank account and a registered address and a, a mandatory ID card, you don't get your UBI. If you're on the train and the, pers the person comes up and says, have you got your ID card with you, sir? And you say, no, I left it at home. They say, you know, it's an offense not to carry your ID card. Your UBI will be docked. So it's basically... Um, and then, and then they can incentivize people as well. Oh, if you volunteer for this charity, you can have your UBI. But where does that go? You know, that that'll be like, oh, you know, and and there's a great example in Ayn Rand's book, *We the Living*, where there's a woman who just um, 
participates in Soviet events. She does all these things like singing the Soviet songs and educating the kids on Marxism and stuff. And she manages to climb up the ladder of the officialdom by kissing ass, basically. But the interesting thing is she isn't actually producing any value for anyone. She isn't like producing products and services that make other people's lives better. She's just brown nosing, right? So that's what this can potentially lead to. And it's quite a scary prospect. Sadly, I'm all too convinced that it is what would happen because yeah. governments tend to abuse their powers. And uh, I'd like to write a science fiction uh, dystopian novel about that. <laughs> you know, that would be a, that would be a cool idea. Yeah, that's a that's a really good premise. Um, uh, another aspect of this is um, all the coronavirus stuff. There's all kinds of people. Uh, you know, I, I hesitate. I hate going on Facebook because. You know, there's people saying, if you don't wear a mask, you're killing grandma and you're being a bad citizen. And so I, I, I'm interested to know how are things going with the, the virus uh, response over in Britain? Is it kind of the same as America? Um, and uh, do you see, where do you see the long-term economic consequences of, of this? <laughs> Very bad. <laughs> Um, yeah, a lot of people are like uh, obsessed with the. I, I mean, what the, the funny thing is, I sometimes see. Are we allowed to drop f bombs on this show? Only one. Well, I, it's PG thirteen, so like one f bomb and a couple of more mild ones is fine. I'll just go. Well, people put banners under their Facebook pictures saying "Stay the f bomb home." Uh, you know, and they think they're being so edgy by including that effort. Not just say stay home, stay home, save lives, which is the mainstream one, but stay the F home. Oh, you're so radical. Look at you telling people. You're sure telling people. I can't believe that. I can't believe. It makes me quite scared. Um, like, it's not, it's like they, if you, if you say, well, you know, this is, it's like, it makes me quite scared how people can take the official line while at the same time thinking they're being radical. That's yeah. like confusing to me. Um, when I was growing up, the, the left used to be anti-establishment. If this lockdown was happening under Thatcher or Reagan, it would have been the left saying that it was authoritarian overreach and it would be the right telling people to stay at home and that they were killing granny. So that's a little bit confusing. Uh, I think the economic consequences are going to be bad. Um, I don't know how quickly things will bounce back. It's like everything's up in the air. I guess we just need to wait and see. But it does raise a point. It's a shame that I didn't update the um, update the manuscript to say if there was a pandemic and people <laughs> left their house, they could have their UBI docked, and people would say that's a very good idea. It's the thin end of the wedge. Yeah, I, I'm. I mean, I feel for people who are going to suffer from the economic consequences because it seems like there was no bacon. It was like, right, this is just what we've got to do to stop the spread of the virus. But um, there was no cons no consciousness over how badly this might affect some people. It's like we're being subjected to a weird experiment in totalitarianism right now. Yeah, it is. It is strange. Um, it, it is. Yeah. Speaking of science fiction, it, it seems like we're in that um, every day. What's the uh, I assume Great Britain has a central bank, right? Or what are they doing? Are they doing some of the same things that the Fed is doing over here? Yeah, the Bank of England. Yeah. Yeah, the, the government put a lot of people on furlough, which was they'll pay them 80 percent of their salary to stay at home and do nothing. And in a way, it seems kind of necessary because you can't tell people that they can't go to work and then not pay them. But <clears throat> I don't know how long it's going to take the chickens to roost in terms of inflation. I don't know if there's going to be, I, I have no idea if the price of everything is going to go up because they, they gave people all this free money or if it's going to go down because so many people have less money and they, they've got less to spend. But um, I really, I, I'm really not a betting man when it comes to this. I'm kind of like 
uh, I'm just going to have to grab some popcorn and hope for the best. Yeah, I, I think that's what we're all doing. Um, I think you you had a book out uh, or uh, uh, an ebook at least on procrastination, right? A year or two ago. Yeah, I've got a couple of self-help ebooks. One's called Procrastination Annihilation, and the other one is called How to Make Small Talk. You can get them both on Amazon Kindle. I've not done paperbacks yet, so I want to revise them. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can also download a free PDF of them from beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it. Um, Sorry, what, what's the question? No, I, I was going to uh, ask um, maybe a, a few tips for people because you've been very successful uh, promoting your uh, niche in the, the liberty movement. You've been on Tom Woods a few times. You had the so Soho Forum thing. And I think some something that keeps people who have ideas and maybe a desire to do that from attaining that is they they – they procrastinate or they negotiate with themselves and convince them, Oh, maybe I, I can't do that. Uh, there's no way I can right. ever get on Tom Woods or whatever. What are, like, how do, what do you have to change your mind to start thinking differently about that? You can do it, but you need to provide something of value. So if you want to be a libertarian writer or thinker, I mean, my job is I'm a therapist, right? I do the, all the libertarian stuff as a hobby, but it came my job. And the reason why I did it was I familiarized myself with what was out there and I saw gaps which I personally thought needed filling. And I went about filling those gaps. So, you know, a lot of people want to do libertarian podcasts and things like that. There's millions of them. Do you have something? Do you have something to offer over and above what's out there already? Um, that's what I suggest. Then <clears throat> how do you go about doing it? Well, choose on choose on something that you think's achievable to you, like um, writing 20 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day. Or if you can't get yourself to do 20 minutes a day, can you do 15? Can you do 10? Uh, can you do five? Get whatever you can negotiate that is an amount of time that you could properly dedicate to this. Do that for two to three weeks every day without missing a day. And then once it's a habit, you can always bump up the time. You can do it twice a day or something like that. But it's very difficult to build in the amount of time you want and to get the original habit at the same time. So take the smallest possible chunk that you know that you can commit to and lock that in first as a habit, and you'll be able to build upon that. For more, you should uh, get the book Procrastination Annihilation because it's a nice book and it's right. short. You'll enjoy yeah. it. Um, let's. Uh, uh, I'll give you a chance before we say goodbye to talk about. Uh, I think you alluded to you're working on another book or have an idea. Um, well, upcoming projects. Uh, what can people look forward to see from you? I'm always. I'm always working on a bunch of books because I'm much better than at starting them than finishing them. So I was working on a book on healthcare reform for a long time, but it got really it got to the point where it was really hard and it was slowing me down in terms of writing. So I decided to change project and I'll go back to that when the time's right. Right now I'm really excited about a book I'm writing, which is uh, contrasting of the views of Mises and Marx. Mises did a formal critique of Marx in Theory and History in Chapter 7 of Theory and History. And I took that as my starting point, but I also borrow his critiques of Marx from bureaucracy, um, little bits and pieces from liberalism, from socialism, his book Socialism, and obviously Human Action. And uh, I stitched them together uh, so I'm, I'm putting them out, I'm putting the chapters out as essays on Mises.org. Only one's gone out so far, another one's going out tomorrow. And the, the they're shortened versions of the chapters of the book. That's really exciting just because there's something cool about simplifying ideas that a lot of people would find impenetrable for into language that anyone can understand, into a chatty language. And it's something that's not been done and it's something that's very esoteric. It's not for the mass market. I'm not yeah. likely to sell thousands of books. But the great thing with this project is the people who do read it will freaking love it. 
And, you know, people don't actually understand uh, in libertarian circles how fascinating a thinker Marx is, you know. Uh, I've often said that, that you read uh, like the Communist Manifesto, he has, he thinks a lot of, about a lot of things we should be thinking about. He comes up with a lot of the wrong the answers and the uh, specifically the class analysis that he kind of gets it, but the real class is the state and its friends and everybody else. But right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. No, M- Marx is full of fascinating and sometimes contradictory ideas. And sometimes I, I sometimes even ideas that seem plausible. I mean, his most people wouldn't fully assent to his idea that the means of production are the force driving history. A lot of people don't even know that he thought that. A lot of people start with his class analysis. Actually, his class analysis is the second point. A lot of Marxists wouldn't agree with me, Marx, that the that you know there's no such thing as the history of ideas because all our ideas are just phantoms, which are um, in our head as a product of the means of production. Most Marxists wouldn't believe that, but it's an interesting idea to explore. And if you look at something like, say, how dating has changed because of dating apps, you could make a reading of Marx that went, well, Marx Marx predicted this. Look at what he says about how the means of production affect society. Look at how uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, Google, YouTube have affected the way that we interact with one another. You could take a Marxist reading of that and go, oh, look, Marx predicted this. Look at what he says about how the means of production affect society. It's stretching it a bit. You know, you'd have to have Marx in front of you to say, is this what you meant? I'm sure he'd probably take credit for it and say yes. But it's it's interesting. It's interesting to know about. And and so is Mises. So you get to know quite a lot about both Marx and Mises from this up and coming project. That's good. Um, do you have a, a timeline on it or is it uh, too early to tell when it's going to be done? The timeline on it is it really depends on how much work I do <laughs> because, yeah. you know, it's it's not my job. I, I, I see a lot. I, I see more people than ever now. Um, in my and I need to squeeze my writing into evenings and free days and things. And I'm not I'm not really a high energy person. Like I'm not I, I'm not a person that's got that can work all day and then go. Well, you know, I think I'm gonna write. But it's good so far. I definitely like to see it out by the end of the year. In the meantime, you can go on Mises.org and do a search of Anthony Samroff and read a couple of the articles and send me some feedback on Facebook saying, I liked your article because that often does encourage me to get my head down and go, oh, great, people are reading. I should really work on that. You've mentioned uh, being a, a therapist, counselor. Uh, how long have you been doing that? And and what is, um, how are people doing now? You said you're, you're, you're working more than ever. Are people coping well with all this? What's working for people? <laughs> That's a funny question that quite a few people have asked me. I, I'm working more because I put myself out there more because I was at home. I couldn't do my usual activities. So I thought I might as well take people on. Um, it's really hard for me to tell because I haven't had people coming through specifically to say I'm having a real hard time with this lockdown uh, and I could do with some counselling right now. Um, so it's really hard to take the temperature outside at the best of times because we all live in little bubbles of people who think similarly to us, especially on Facebook. So it's really hard to go out and see what the man in the street thinks. But I've heard that the suicide hotlines are ringing off the hook and things like that. It's um, it's a sad uh, state of affairs. So um, I would just say, I guess, that if anyone is struggling with that, they should um, send me a little message, or anything, in fact, they should send me a little message saying that they heard me on this show. I would usually um, speak to you for an hour free of charge and find out if I'm able to help you or not. I I always like to know that I'm I'm able to help someone before um, making an agreement to take any money off them. So um, most of my clients... Uh, I see online. All of my clients I see online now because we're right. under lockdown. 
Yep. Um, go ahead and, and tell people how, if they want to get in touch with you for that, uh, how to do it, your be yourself and love it website. And so all the plugs for all the stuff that people can, uh, engage with you more. Usually the best way to get me is on Facebook, uh, send me a friend's request and send me a message as well, because sometimes I wait quite a long time before adding new friends. If you send me a message, I'll get inboxed. Um, you can also email me anthony at beyourselfandloveit.com. You can go to beyourselfandloveit.com. You can also find my YouTube channel. My podcast pro, uh, is Be Yourself and Love It podcast. That's a personal development podcast. And I, I like it. It's a good podcast. It's useful. I only discuss topics that I think are of practical value to people. And then there's Scottish Liberty podcast as well. If you like my libertarian stuff. Right. Well, it, it's been a pleasure um, to, to talk to you and finally kind of meet you, even though it's uh, online and uh, I appreciate your work and I'm, I'm, I'm always uh, admirable uh, of people who um, are in a, in a place where they're very different and, uh, and, and carving out a niche and, and being bold about it. And what you're doing in Scotland, I think fits that bill. So um, it's been, a, yeah, it's just been great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. The pleasure is mine. Uh, a great honor to be invited and I look forward to speaking to you again. Okay. We'll see you. We'll have you on when the, uh, the, the Marks and Mises book is done. Oh, amazing. Thanks. Okay. All right. Speak to you then. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Anthony Samroff for being very generous with his time and we wish him all the best on all his future endeavors, including that book on Mises and Marx, which sounds really interesting. I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, and reviews the Decentralized Revolution podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.